Beautiful singing. Hope that was good for your soul. The message of Christianity is hard to believe, isn't it? You'll know this by experience if you've ever talked to someone about Jesus who doesn't yet believe in him. A common objection I've heard, and maybe you have too, goes something like this. So you Christians think that no matter how bad you've been, believing in Jesus is all that God requires of you to be forgiven. I mean, you can be a murderer and on your deathbed turn to Jesus and be saved. And we Christians hear the objection and understand and feel the tension, and yet we heartily say, yes, this is true. This is the good news, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord, no matter what your past, no matter what your history, shall be saved. I think one of the things that makes Christianity hard to believe is that at its core, it's a message of grace. God shows love and kindness. He even favors people who don't deserve it. It's not that the message of grace is too complicated for our brains to understand, but it's hard for our hearts to believe because it's contrary to the way we think of salvation or the way we think salvation should work. Naturally, we think that people, or sorry, naturally we think that good people, if there ever were such a thing, get salvation because the good things they do, right? We, we seem to think only in categories of earning and rewards when it comes to salvation. We seem dead set on performance for salvation. But the Bible teaches in no uncertain terms that there are no good people. And salvation is purely and sheerly a gift from God. And only those who recognize that they aren't good people and throw themselves completely into the arms of Jesus receive salvation. It's humbling. We don't need to do penance or religious to-do lists to gain his favor. By faith in Jesus Christ, plus nothing else, Our dirty slate is wiped clean. Our sins are pardoned. Our guilt is atoned for. Our relationship with God is made completely new. Now, people out there have a hard time believing this, for sure. People who aren't yet Christians. But what about us who are Christians? Don't we also have a hard time believing this, too? I mean, at times, even us believers don't believe what we say we believe, right? We struggle to believe the message of Christianity. If we're honest, most days our prayer should start with, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. Strangely, the human heart repels in unbelief against the message of grace and God's love. Instead of believing it, we we often convince ourselves that God actually wants us to try harder or work harder so that he'll love us. Too often, we Christians think that our acceptance with God is based on our godliness or our Bible study or our sincerity or our service at church. Today, I hope to debunk this age-old myth by filling your mind and mine with the gospel of grace. 
that his favor towards moral failures like you and I is enough. That faith in Jesus Christ is enough. That our salvation is not earned, but received. That our sins are nailed to the cross, and we bear them no more. I'd like to be refreshed and refresh you in the gospel today. Whether you've come to church for decades or today is your first day, come along with me and let me tell you the old, old story that is ever timely. And my prayer is that today you and I will leave here believing the gospel afresh. That our souls would return to their rest in the good God who has dealt bountifully with us. That you'd recline and relax in what God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done for you by grace. Because he loves you. Today I'd like to start a short series on the assurance of salvation. And what do I mean by assurance? I mean that sense of confidence that you and I can have, that God has truly saved us, and that he truly loves us. That he is ours, and we are his. One author defines assurance as a God-given confidence for every true believer in Christ, of their present approval and future acceptance by their Father. Why don't we need this? Is it possible for you and I to be confident today that we're children of the living God? Is it possible to be sure that our sins are forgiven and will never suffer the wrath of God? How can we be so confident Today we're going to look at Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, to find our confidence in Christ. So please turn with me to Romans chapter 5. In the Bibles in front of you, um, I don't know what page it's on. Sorry, I was supposed to fill this in. Um, (laughs) Just holler it. 942 in the uh, the Bibles in front of you. So please uh, flip to 942. Or open up your tablet or your phone and join me in Romans chapter 5. In this text, we'll see 11 features of a true believer. And I just want to apologize to the children who are filling in the blanks. There is a lot of blanks today, okay? (laughs) But you'll get candy, uh, okay, at the very end. But uh, yeah, so we're going to see 11 features of a true believer in this text. And as we see what a true believer is, you can test yourselves to find out if this is true for you. If what this text is saying is true for you, be assured, be confident that you're a Christian. As we'll see today, I believe truly that true believers can be confident that the triune God has saved them. True believers can be confident that the triune God has saved them. But before we dig into this beautiful text, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we ask that you would shape our thinking, that you deepen our confidence in you, that we would believe that Jesus Christ has nailed our sins to the cross, and we bear them no more. Lord, we pray that uh, we leave here happy in Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. 
So in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, we see in those 11 verses the word we 16 times. Okay, And each time this word we is being used, God is telling us something that's true of all believers. Paul is writing to the church at Rome, but what he says to them, what that was true of them, is true also for us who believe in Jesus. From the very first verse, we're being told things that are true of us if we're true, if we're genuine, if we're real believers. And what it says about us at times will floor us today. So let's start with number one. The first thing this text says is that true believers have been declared righteous by faith. True believers have been declared righteous by faith. Look at verse one. It starts with therefore. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith. This chapter begins with a celebration of what all believers are and have through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are declared righteous or justified. That's what it means. We're declared righteous and we have received a righteousness from God through Christ that we did not earn. In Romans 1 through 4, Paul has been arguing that mankind is sinful to the core. And only through faith in Christ will we ever be approved, accepted by the three-person God. So in verse, or sorry, uh, so in chapter four, Paul alludes to Abraham to prove his point that this is what God has always been up to. This is the way that God has always been working. And he goes back to Abraham to show that this is how he dealt with Abraham. He shows that Abraham was made right. In God's sight, by faith. By trusting what God had said, Abraham, like us, is declared right with God. And like Abraham, we believers have been justified, past tense, or declared righteous by God himself. It's God who gives this verdict. It's God who says this is so. By faith in Christ, our standing and our status before God has been completely altered. He approves of us when we trust Christ. So we who believe in Christ can be confident that God has saved us because he says right here that we're justified or declared righteous by faith in Christ. And there's more. Next we see that true believers have peace with God through Christ. Look at the rest of verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So peace with God here is one of the blessings of having a new relationship with him. I think Paul is talking about our changed status and standing before God. We'll see this theme again in uh, verses uh, 10 and 11 of this chapter, where Paul uses the word reconciliation to refer to the same thing. I think it has to do with moving from the status of rebels and enemies against God who are hostile towards him to, to moving to friends and family and sons and children of God. Now, to be clear, God took the initiative to reconcile us to himself. He didn't have to get his act together, okay? He was the one that took initiative to reconcile us who are at enmity with him to himself through the cross of Christ. 
The cross of Christ has changed our relationship with our Heavenly Father. We're no longer God's enemies. God's wrath no longer hangs over our heads. He has made peace with us. He has destroyed the animosity between us through Christ, the Prince of Peace. So if Jesus is our Savior, we have peace with God now. Which means this, that we're not going to hell anymore. Praise the Lord. Can I get an amen? I mean, what are we worried about? We're not going to hell anymore, Christians. This is true for you, for me. We deserve it. In fact, we've earned it. But it's not true of us anymore because we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Can I get an amen? amen? All right. Do you believe that Jesus died and rose again so you can have peace with God? Are you convinced that you are by nature a rebel against God, hostile to his ways? Have you confessed that you need Jesus to save you and bring you into a new relationship with God? If you want to talk more about this, please come talk to us after the service or email us. But I just want to be clear. Whoever you are, you can have peace with God today. You can be made right with him. Now let's press on. The third thing that marks true believers is that true believers have access to God's grace. This new status, this new relationship with God, this new standing we have through Christ is now a quality of life in which we live and stand. As verses uh, 20 to 21 say, we live in the realm in which grace reigns and grace abounds toward us. We have a secure position and standing with God that is based on grace. God's disposition towards us as his children is marked by grace, by favor, by loving kindness. Take it in. And to be clear, it hasn't always been like this. By grace, we, our relationship with God has been altered and our standing with him has been changed because of his amazing grace. Grace has changed our relationship with God in amazing ways, and uh, it was obtained for us by Jesus Christ. So, believer, take heart. God will never shut you out from experiencing his grace. You stand in grace. Every morning we receive new mercies and fresh experiences of his favor, of his grace towards us lowly, little, failing believers. And how do we access this grace? Well, look with me at verse 2. It's accessed by faith. Through him, that is Jesus, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to God's favor by faith, not by doing more Bible studies or church activities. Simply trusting his promises brings us into that grace in which we stand. That's faith. That's hard to believe, isn't it? And yet this is how we access the gracious and loving heart of our Father. It's by faith. By faith. Now, is this conflicting with the way you thought God works? Me too. 
It's, it's counterintuitive, isn't it? We, we thought we had to earn it naturally. But the gospel of grace flies in the face of those works-based heart tendencies and knee-jerk reactions. The next thing we see is that true believers have joy and hope. True believers have joy and hope. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Verse 2. This phrase has at times been translated, uh, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Uh, The word boasting here can be misleading, but the point remains that we have a joyful confidence of God's glory. And God's glory here refers to our glorification, our sharing in the glory of God, believe it or not. If you want to learn more about this, read into Romans 8. But true believers are actually confident and happily expecting to one day become glorified and made in some astounding way like Christ, like God. And we believers are confident that though we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, we will be restored on the final day and glorified in such a way that Paul can say in Romans 8.18, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. So, Christian brother or sister, are you hanging your head, frustrated, displeased, annoyed about your failures to be more like Christ? Let this inspire you. You will be like him one day. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. In his presence, we will be like him. Rid of our sin, we will be like him. And resembling him. Does that give you a joyful confidence, even a hope for today? This is a good test of our assurance, whether or not we're Christians. Now, hope Uh, is the confident expectation that God will come through on his promises. And this is important because as Paul continues, and as we know all too well from our life experience, oftentimes Christians face trials, troubles, even sufferings of many kinds. And sometimes when we're in the middle of those sufferings and trials, we wonder whether or not these truths about the future that we cannot see right now have any bearing on our present circumstances, experiences, sufferings. Hope in God's future promises all too often escape us when hardship comes and happens to us. But Paul will tell us shortly that the blessings he's describing here in this chapter are meant to shape our outlook on our present experiences and circumstances. That is to say, just because hard times come doesn't mean that hope needs to leave. Okay, just because hard times come doesn't mean that hope needs to leave. Hardships can actually be occasions, even environments, for Christians to become more mature, more like Christ. But that is if, and this is a huge if, if we Christians face those circumstances, and sufferings with the right attitude. This is key because suffering doesn't always make Christ-like character in us, does it? Suffering sometimes makes people embittered, angry, 
full of hatred towards God and others and their circumstances in life. So the next thing we see is that true believers persevere through suffering. True believers persevere through suffering. Look at verses 3 and 4. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So though we have peace with God and the hope of glory, we will face troubles in this life. But our hope in Christ anchors our souls in God during those storms in life, right? If we face suffering with faith and hope towards God, he will build our character up. That is to say, if we Christians face suffering in the right way, God will work in us to produce a Christ-like character. So you know what this means. Suffering isn't a waste of time. But it's actually God's environment for the Spirit to grow in us that sanctification. Which is why believers can rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that this is not meaning God has forsaken us. But this is a test. This is a time for us to grow. Knowing that suffering can be the very setting for us to to grow in endurance. And that endurance can produce a tested character. And that tested character can produce hope. Here's a very important sequence when we're testing our assurance. Uh, How do we face suffering? Uh, More specifically, what is your attitude and my attitude towards the hassles of your life? You got a few of them right now, maybe? (laughs) Uh, What about traffic jams, physical sicknesses, discouraging circumstances? What are you doing with them right now? And are you enduring and growing in character through them? If so, our hope in the living God will actually expand. Christ's character will be formed in us. This suffering you're going through, Christian, does not mean God does not love you. God loved and loves his beloved son, and yet his beloved son learned obedience through his suffering. Listen to Doug Moo on this, speaking of hope. Hope like a muscle will not be strong if it goes unused. It is in suffering that we must exercise with deliberation and fortitude our hope and the constant reaffirmation of hope in the midst of apparently hopeless circumstances. Will bring ever uh, ever deeper conviction of the reality and certainty of that for which we hope. Are you facing sufferings today? How are you doing with them? Do you need prayer for endurance, character, and hope? Please, ask someone around you to pray for you before you leave. The Christian life is hard at times, and we have lots of sufferings at times. And so we need each other to bear one another's burdens. Now, as we continue... We see in verse 5 that true believers experience God's love. 
And hope does not put us to shame. Verse 5. Uh, the Old Testament often says that those who hope in God will not suffer shame. The idea is the shame of being declared guilty when we stand before God on the day of our final judgment. That's the ultimate shame. Standing before God and him saying, you're guilty. But we who hope in Christ can be sure our future judgment will not be one of shame. Christ has removed our shame through his obedient life, death, and resurrection. So we Christians can lift our heads knowing that we don't need to dread standing before Jesus. The verdict is in. Our guilt has been paid for. He loves us. He's declared us righteous, not guilty. And we can experience the love that the Father has toward us personally through faith. Because the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, floods our hearts with his love. The love of God is actually poured into our hearts. Look at verse 5. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So maybe you've heard of God's love and read these verses before, but here's an interesting test of your salvation. Have you experienced his love? I mean, have you felt it or sensed it in your heart? Now, before you accuse me of being overly emotional... Listen to the Bible scholar Doug Moo on this verse. He says this, Paul is asserting two things at once. That God's love has been poured into our hearts in the past and that his love is now within us. And this love is conveyed to our sensations by the Holy Spirit who resides in every believer. Paul stresses that God's love for us is active. It is a love that gives to us and takes possession of us. See, for example, 2 Corinthians 5.14, where it says the love of Christ controls us. Takes possession of us and which can stand for all that God has done and will do for us. And it is this internal, subjective, yes, even emotional sensation within the believer that God does indeed love us. Love expressed and made vital in real concrete actions on our behalf that gives to us the assurance that hope will not disappoint us. This is the experiential test of assurance that is grounded in the truths of the gospel. God demonstrated his love through the cross of Christ. And if we believe this, we will experience this love in our hearts. Sometimes we, we need to sing those songs to experience his love afresh, right? And I pray you've experienced that love of the Father as the Holy Spirit has come to be within your heart, to dwell within you. Did you feel the love of God when you first believed at your conversion? Do you believe in Jesus now? Do you feel the love of the Father? Do you feel the love of God in your heart today? I pray so.
The next thing we see in this text is that true believers don't deserve God's love. Look at verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Now, Paul is contrasting human-to-human love with the love that God has towards his people. God's love is on a whole different level. He expressed his love in the sacrifice of Christ. The Father gave his perfect Son for us imperfect sinners. Christ gave his perfect life for us morally weak and ungodly people. Somehow, some way, we've become the objects of the Father's love. At the very time that we were weak and ungodly, Christ died for us. An unexpected gift towards undeserved, undeserving sinners. He continues in verse 7 by saying, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. The point here seems to be that the peak of human love is to die for a friend or relative that you love. Right? Sacrifice. That is a demonstration of love. To die for either a righteous, deserving person, or a good, moral person, though rare, may happen in human relationships. It may happen, and when it happens, we buy the books, we watch the movies, we love the story of sacrificial love. But those are just traces of the real, ultimate love. Because Christ died for people who were neither good nor moral. And even more shocking is that the people he died for weren't even his friends at the time. They actually hated him. They were his enemies, the type that might even crucify him. He died for them. And yet, this is what floors us about Christianity, isn't it? We're not worthy, but he loves us. It's grace. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. This is solid ground to stand on. It's a song of assurance. Simple, yet profound and true. Do you believe it for yourself? Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Amen and amen. Now Paul elaborates more on this love in verse 8, which shows us that True believers were loved by God the Father and Son while we were still sinners. There's more. But God shows, verse 8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This text reminds us that God's love comes running for us before we ever start responding in love to him. He's the one who loved us when we were still sinners. Which means our assurance doesn't come from how deeply we love God, but from how deeply he loves us. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. But I want you to notice that this verse teaches that God the Father shows his love for us while we're sinners. While we're dead in our sins. The love of the Father, I believe, is a very important pastoral issue. Because too often we wonder, and we get confused, we wonder if the Father is frowning toward us, and He needs Jesus to coerce Him to love us. 
But no, there's no need for anyone to convince the Heavenly Father to love us. He loves us and shows His love by giving us His Son. It is He that's referred to at the start of this verse. But God shows His love for us. He shows His love for us by sending Christ to die for us, even while we were still sinners rebelling against Him. Are you convinced of the Heavenly Father's love for you? Of your adoption into the family of God? This brings assurance. I love what Sinclair Ferguson says about this. He says, The Scriptures affirm that the love of God for us is the reason for the death of Christ. The Son does not need to do anything to persuade the Father to love us. He already loves us. How can we ever be sure the Father himself loves us deep down with an everlasting love? He loved us before Christ died for us. It is because he loves us that Christ died for us. Are you confident that God the Father, God the Son and Holy Spirit love you? If not, continue to dig into verses like these and 1 John 4 and grow in confidence that the Heavenly Father Himself loves you. Next we see that true believers will be saved from God's wrath. Look at verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So here is the dread that keeps many people up at night. It's the dread that causes people sometimes to run to a bottle or to a joint, some other form of escape. It's the fear of God's wrath that we sense in our hearts. I remember it well, maybe you do too. At times it did keep me up at night before I became a Christian. The fear that One day I'd be judged for everything I've ever done and I wasn't prepared to face my maker. Christians, Christian brother and sister, you have been rescued once and for all from this dread. You do not need to live with this dread. We believers have hope that the God who saved us when we believed in Jesus will save us from his wrath when we die and face him. We do not live under the dread of condemnation anymore. All because of Jesus' blood, which is a shorthand for his sacrificial death. Christ is our Passover lamb. He shed his blood to save us from the coming wrath of God. It's not coming to you or me if we're covered in the blood of Christ. If he went to the cross to die for us when we were sinners... Why would we doubt him to save us from God's wrath now that we're believers? Praise God. It's true. Paul said this in his letter to the Thessalonian church as well. Speaking of uh, their conversion, he says in 1 Thessalonians 1, 9-10, You turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So if you're a true believer in Christ, this is true of you, which leads into the next point. We true believers are no longer enemies with God. Look at verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. 
Our salvation, our rescue, our redemption is based on Christ. We were reconciled to God while we were enemies of God through his death. But Jesus rose again, and he lives, and the risen Christ is the grounds by which we are reconciled. Now, reconciliation means to bring together or bring peace between two parties that are hostile, that are at enmity, and are estranged from one another. We who have rebelled against God were estranged and hostile towards him. But Jesus squashed that animosity. If we were reconciled while being enemies, how much more shall we be reconciled through his resurrection life? The point is, if Christ saved us then, he'll save us in the future. He's still the savior that he's always been for his people. Now we come to the final place for our soul to find its rest today. Look at verse 11. Here it shows us that true believers have been reconciled to God through Christ. More than that, we also rejoice, verse 11, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received, received reconciliation. We Christians should certainly live with hope and joy today because through Jesus Christ, we've been brought into a happy relationship with the true three-person God. All three persons of the Godhead have accomplished our redemption. We have received it from them. The Father loved us and sent his Son. The Son loved us and died and rose again to accomplish our redemption. And the Holy Spirit applies this redemption, flooding our hearts with God's love when we believe. Today I wanted to be as clear as possible to show you where your confidence, where your assurance is. And to be clear, it's not in your church attendance or your church service, not in your ministry successes or ministry positions, not in your Bible knowledge or faithfulness in prayer. Though all these are good things, if you're a believer, Jesus Christ is your assurance. Jesus Christ is your confidence. Your acceptance with God is based on faith in him. Have you put all your chips on him? Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, because of him, that is God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, as I close, uh, I want to remind you of something that, that may seem quite obvious, and it's this. None of these benefits are available to you outside of Christ. This passage has bookends that mark the conditions of the promise, of the promises. Paul says in verse 1 and in verse 11 that these blessings come to us through our Lord Jesus Christ. They're not available in any other person or in any other religion of the world. There's only one Savior for mankind, and it's the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you come to God through Him? Come and believe. Is it hard to believe in Christianity? Then let's be honest. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we do want to grow in our confidence that Jesus Christ is enough. I pray that you would seal these truths upon each heart here. That each of us would look not to ourselves or anything else, but Jesus Christ for our approval with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and let's sing more. Let's sing some more praises to our God. <laughs> 